And our lesson for this second Sunday of Advent comes from Isaiah chapter 11. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. His delight is in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this promise of the sure hope and the sure victory of your son, Jesus Christ, over the nations. And so we rejoice that we get to rest in and rejoice in his work and we get to be swept up in it today before your throne. So Father, by your spirit, open our ears, open our hearts, uh, cause us to receive this word and to be strengthened by it and to bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, we are in the season of Advent where all of our songs and our prayers and our, our scripture readings focus on all of the ways that our Lord Jesus comes to us. Certainly, we are uh, considering and preparing for the great celebration of his nativity, of his birth. And that's certainly one way that God has promised that Jesus would come to us, and he did in the incarnation. But there are other ways that he draws near to, to us, other ways that he comes to us. Advent is, it comes from a Latin word that simply means to arrive or, or to come near. And so we do rejoice in the birth of our Savior, but we also rejoice and are in expectation of the day of the Lord and all the ways, all of the Lord's days where he comes to draw near to us to bless, to set things right, to reign, to commune with his people. All of these various comings, all of these drawing near, all of these ways that Jesus arrives are all in uh, in, in view in the season of Advent. So we're looking forward to his future coming in judgment, the coming in the growth of his kingdom. And when we talk about future things, we use this word a lot. We use the word eschatology. I don't ever want to use words without defining them, though, and make sure that we're all on the same page. We're understanding what we're talking about. Eschatology is the study of last things. It's the study of things to come. Words that end in Ology or logi denote a study of something. So geology is the study of rocks. Biology is the study of life. Anthropology is the study of mankind. Cryptozoology is the study of Bigfoot um, and others, other things. Eschatology then, you know, it's the study of something. Eschatology is the study of something. Eschatos means last in Greek. So you put those two things together, eschatology refers to the study of last things, things to come, things in our future. We use the word eschatology 
to refer to what the Bible says about these things. That's how we use this word. But everyone has an eschatology. Whether or not they believe the Bible, everybody has an outlook. Everybody has a view of the future. Everyone has an expectation or a hope of what the future holds. For the radical environmentalists, their narrative is that uh, the earth is uh, going to eventually reject this parasite known as humanity, and then the earth will spend the next few millennia healing, and then maybe some gentler, more noble creature will evolve uh, that, will, that will love the earth in a different way. And so their short-term view of the future, their short-term eschatology is a cold, miserable existence where everyone's allowed to charge their tiny cars for 10 minutes a day so that we can make our weekly trip to the bug store for our supper. Um, that's one vision of the future. But there are various versions of this bleak outlook with overpopulation, global warming, oil depletion, deforestation, and Elon Musk all factored in there somehow uh, in this bleak view of the future. Occasionally, you will hear someone promote a kind of Star Trek view of the future, a kind of Star Trek eschatology, wherein eventually humanity will unite to take interstellar expeditions and demographically balanced crews where we will all wear form-fitting uh, overalls and, and alien races will teach us how to get in touch with our feelings. Um, that's, that's new Star Trek, not the old Star Trek, obviously. The old Star Trek is much better. We just shoot the aliens in the face. Um, but that's new Star Trek. But for every Star Trek eschatology, there's, there's also a zombie apocalypse eschatology that, that is a view of the future full of terror and dread and disaster and really the ultimate failure of humanity. And that's one popular outlook. But everyone has an eschatology. Everyone has a view of the future. And among American evangelicals, among American Christians, there are two popular approaches to the study of things to come. The first is a kind of obsession with subjects like the rapture, a future great tribulation, the mark of the beast. This, this hunger is fed by the left-behind novels. And somebody pointed out, Randy Sophia told me, there's a new a new Left Behind movie? I thought the audience and the demand for that had depleted, but there's a new one, so go check that out and tell me what you think. Um, this is also fed and fueled by, there are still late night TV preachers and internet end times authorities who are convinced that they have the book of Revelation lined up pretty well with current events. And everything points to the fact that we're living at the very end of human history. You know, kind of like we were in the 80s, also living at the very end of human history. And with this perspective comes significant anxiety and a sense of defeat. It, it's not hopeful uh, for the prospects of the church. It's not hopeful for the success of the gospel. There is, however, another popular approach in the church which rejects the sensationalism of the last days left behind crew. Uh, another approach, though, that doesn't have a lot of interest in providing an alternative answer. If you ask them, are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? They kind of chuckle and say, well, I'm kind of panmillennial. We'll just wait and see how it all pans out. They don't really want to study it. They don't really care. They have an idea that history will somehow lumber along. Sometimes things will get better. Sometimes things will be worse. But that really, in the end, the church and her work is purely spiritual. 
And the only, the only interest of the church is getting individual souls to heaven. And so the church really doesn't have much impact on society. The church's jurisdiction is from 9.30 to 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And outside of that, it doesn't really do anything. The nations don't get discipled. And so one day, whenever it happens, God is going to wrap everything up and this present project will be over. And thank goodness for that because this whole project was mostly a failure. The, the most charitable view on this, I think, is that many people who would hold this position or would articulate something like this, and I understand there are many, um, uh, uh, th th this is a continuum, this is not a, a, a broad, I'm, I'm sorry, a, a very specific two camp kind of thing. This is a broad thing, but, but most people would say it's not really worth our time to figure it out. They would say, well, we just got very clear commandments in the Bible that we need to get busy obeying and God is just going to sort everything out in the end and I'm not going to worry about it. Well, one thing that I appreciate about the first group, the ones who believe that we are living at the end of human history, one thing that I appreciate about them is the high regard they give to the Bible. They believe that God has spoken and that he has revealed his plans and our job is to understand it. Now, I spent more than the first half of my life with this perspective. I could confidently chart out Daniel and Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation and I could line it all up to the Middle East and to the Soviet Union, and I could, I could line that all up, um, all these apocalyptic events in our very near future. Uh, because my starting point was the Bible, I was trying to interpret what the Bible said. Now I look back and I see I was not, I was not operating with a very clear understanding of history or the scriptures, but still the starting point was the Bible, and it was a good faith effort to understand what the Bible says. Well, what if we held on to that? What if we said, um, yeah, I like that. I agree. God's word is our authority. The Bible does indeed describe events of world history with clarity and reliability. You can trust what God says. Let's hold on to that. And what if we agreed with the other group, the second group, we're not going to be anxious about it. We're not going to be pessimistic, but we're going to rest and be joyful in God's sovereign rule over the events of human history. If we could take those two things and put them together, that would be a fairly attractive position. What if we layered on top of that? What if we put on top of that a sure hope and confidence that Jesus and his people do not lose in history? The hope that in fact, the church fulfills her mission and that the gospel is successful in converting the nations. Well, if we could put all that together, if we could have that, that would certainly be delightful. But is it true? I mean, that's, that's, it's got to be true. I'm confident that it is and that it's not only true, but that it matters a great deal. This is not, when we talk about eschatology, we're not talking about theology nerd stuff. We're not, we're not talking about things that only matter to people who um, like nerding out on, on passages of scripture. Christians care about eschatology because the Bible has so much to say about what lies in store for the world. The Bible is a book of prophecy. God makes promises and he fulfills them. Every time God makes a promise, that's eschatology. God is saying, this is something I'm going to do. And he fulfills his, his promises. The triune God of creation has a perfect track record of keeping 
his promises. And so eschatology is important because God's word forecasts the future every time God makes a promise. Now, what I hope to show you today is that the gospel itself is an eschatological announcement of God's victory. The gospel itself is full of optimism. A, a confident, optimistic hope for the success of the kingdom of heaven is baked into the gospel. Uh, we're not going to talk today about the mark of the beast. We're not going to talk about 70 weeks in Daniel. I've got other resources that I could point you to, and certainly we've gone through those things and we've talked about them at length, and um, I can show you where those resources are. But today I want to sink our teeth into this truth, this thing, that the gospel is an announcement of the victory of God. The gospel is an announcement of the victory of God. If we aren't preaching a gospel of victory, then we are not preaching a biblical gospel. To put it another way, if we're preaching and teaching in such a way that leads people to an expectation of defeat and despair and futility for the gospel and for the church, if that's, what, if that's where we're leading, folks, we aren't preaching the gospel. So here's how we need to think about this. The gospel is a message of salvation, right? It's a, it's a message about salvation. To say that is, it's almost a tautology, right? It's, it's like defining, yeah, of course. The gospel is about salvation. Yes, the gospel is the good news about Jesus, a man whose name, Yeshua is his name. His name means God saves. And we see this over and over throughout the life of Jesus, even when he's a child. In um, the song that Simeon sings over the boy Jesus, Simeon sings, Mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. Simeon says, I am holding salvation in my hands. This is God's salvation when he looks at Jesus. Peter preaches about Jesus in Acts 4. And Peter says, there is no other name uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in the name of Jesus. Salvation resides and rests in the person of Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Belief and trust in this man, Jesus, whose name means God saves, is salvation. It is the power of God to salvation. So the gospel is a message about Jesus and Jesus is the man of salvation. So the gospel is a salvation message. But what are we talking about when we use this word salvation? Saved. Saved from what? Saved to what? Saved how? The word that appears in Jesus's name Shua, his name is Yeshua, God saves. Shua is the word save in Hebrew, and it's a key term used throughout the Old Testament, and it's repeatedly used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's victory. The word Shua is a, is, is a synonym. It's, it's often translated deliverance uh, or, or, or in situations where God's people gain victory. They gain Shua. Um, in, in 1 Samuel 23, which, which I really enjoy reading, um, 
And every, every young man in the, in the body, every young man in the congregation ought to especially enjoy first, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 23, because it's about David's roster of his mighty men. And it's all about their, their mighty deeds and their mighty acts. It's so much fun to read. Um, but here in a list of um, his mighty men, we read about Eleazar, who arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Yahweh brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. That word victory is shua. That word victory is salvation. And then we keep going and reading about the other mighty men. In verse 11, after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So Yahweh brought about a great victory, a great shua, a great salvation. Um, God brings about a great salvation of Israel, a great victory, and that is achieved by subduing the enemies of God, by subduing the enemies of God's people and delivering his people. And that's a military salvation. That's a military victory. So um, salvation in this context is about God conquering his enemies. It's about God subduing his enemies. He puts down threats to his people. He puts down threats to peace and order, threats to right worship, threats to communion with God. And God gives Shua. He gives victory. He gives salvation. In 2 Kings 5, we read about Naaman, the Syrian leper. And we read there, by him, by Naaman, God, Yahweh, had given victory to Syria. What did he give to Syria? Shua. He gave salvation. Now, this was a political victory. It was a military victory, but the word is salvation. Now, in this context and what we're reading here is that this is not typically what we think of when we think of salvation. When we think of salvation, we're thinking about primarily a personal thing, an internal thing, an unseen, a quiet thing of the heart. Salvation we think of as an intimate thing. But so often when salvation is used in the Bible, the context is God's public open victory over his enemies in history. Let me give you a few other examples. In uh, Exodus 14, before Israel crossed the Red Sea, Moses said, don't be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. What did that salvation look like? It wasn't quiet. And it wasn't internal. It was an open public victory over the enemies of God. And after the Egyptian army is drowned in the Red Sea, we uh, hear Moses write, so Yahweh saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then everyone breaks out into song. And they sing, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. So on the other side of the Red Sea, if you ask an Israelite, how do you define salvation? You're just singing about it. And Moses told you to wait for it. And you're all talking about salvation. You're talking about Shua. What does it mean to be saved? Well, the answer is God's salvation is him triumphing over the Egyptians. His salvation is him delivering his children from bondage to their enemies and providing them a safe place to worship. That is his salvation. 
They look at the shores of the Red Sea littered with broken chariots and with spears and busted helmets, and they see the devastation of the Egyptian army, and they say, this is salvation. God is victorious over our enemies and his enemies. The Psalms are full of this language as well. The terms saved and salvation in Psalms come in the context of the psalmist being attacked and he's crying out for protection from his enemies. Salvation is deliverance from threats and the savior in the Psalms is the one who conquers his enemies. I'm just gonna give you a couple examples. This word is everywhere and you can do your own study. Psalm 3.8 says, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing is on your people. Okay, how does God accomplish this salvation in Psalm 3? Well, in verse 7, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, shua me, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone, you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. So when God saves somebody in the Psalms, and when God saves somebody in the Old Testament, somebody gets a black eye. When God saves someone, someone gets a few broken teeth, and they lose they, they, they lose a few teeth. Psalm 118 says, all nations surrounded me, but in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They, sound, they surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He has become my victory. He is my Shua. So God's salvation is accomplished by his victory over his enemies and our enemies. Yes, God is a personal God. God's spirit does indwell in us. We do have a relationship with each member of the Trinity. I am not denying that at all. But salvation has more than simply, more than merely a personal internal dimension. The salvation that God brings is an open public cultural, sometimes militant salvation. And we carry that understanding with us over into the New Testament. Gospel salvation, gospel deliverance entails God's public victory. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, how is Christ a king? Here's the answer. How is Christ a king? As a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Christ's office as king, then, is to conquer and to rule. He's the head of the new covenant. His very name is God is our savior, God saves. And so the gospel, the good news, is the announcement of God's victory over our enemies. And this has got to be our starting point. Before you even start to unpack Daniel or Zechariah, or you start to understand Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, before you start to read Revelation, here is the starting point. Here is the beginning. We know that God's plans for the world through Jesus are not a program of defeat, but a program of victory, a program of conquest. The gospel proclamation itself is incompatible with the assumption that the church in history is only going to get tinier and tinier. The church is only going to get less and less influential. The church is going to grow weaker and more sickly until Jesus comes right at the bitter end just to rescue a handful of, of huddled, weak people. 
And then, and then after he rescues them, he'll blow the earth away to bits. That would be a gospel of defeat. That would be a gospel of, that, that would be a failure to disciple the nations. That would give us an empty expectation for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did Jesus teach us to pray for something that's never gonna happen? Did Jesus disciple us to pray for things that are not possible? Or does Jesus pray for something and teach us to pray for something that is a reality, that is a promise that God is going to fulfill? The gospel is indeed a victorious proclamation that Satan does not win. Hell does not get the victory. Jesus wins and all the world will acknowledge him as Lord and King. What I'm saying here is just repeating the prophets of the Old Testament. This is how the Old Testament prophets understood the coming of Messiah. That his coming, the coming of Messiah, would mark the beginning of a new kingdom and the increase of that kingdom would never end. That it would just keep growing larger and brighter and brighter. Our scripture readings in Advent are full of these sorts of promises. And today's reading from Isaiah 11 tells about the coming of the man of the house of Jesse, a son of David. He starts in chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I have a tree in our backyard, a mulberry tree that we've tried to kill every single way we know how to kill. And there is no killing this tree. This tree is the terminator. This tree is a, a monster that just keeps, keeps coming back. And, and every time you cut it down, there's a new shoot. There's a new branch. Judah is a cut down tree. Judah has been felled. Judah is a stump. And yet here is a rod. Here is a stem. Here is a branch growing out of the stump. And he comes from the house of Jesse. There is life here. God has not abandoned his promises and he's not abandoned us. He sends this shoot, this branch up out of the stump. And that's what Isaiah says. He is also this rod, this branch, is the one upon whom the spirit of Yahweh rests. Verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. So this Messiah that Isaiah is speaking about, Messiah means anointed. And so he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Um, Messiah means anointed one. And this Messiah will possess this uncommon authority and presence and glory, like we've seen in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. People marvel at the way that Jesus spoke and the way that he taught and the way that he worked. He did it with authority. And, and Isaiah says that's what he's going to do. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might will rest upon him. And then um, in, in verse 3, we read... Uh, this and we hear this salvation language, the kind of language I've just been talking about, this shua, this victory. His delight is in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Once again, this is shua. This is victory. This is, this is salvation language. And that's what Jesus comes to do, to put down the, the oppressor, to raise up the righteous, and to establish truth 
and justice and equity in the, in the earth. Biblical truth and justice and equity as God defines it. And the outcome, the overflow of this victory is this wonderful imagery that Isaiah gives us that captures our imaginations. I love dwelling on this and thinking about the implications of these next three verses. Listen to this again. Verse six, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. What, what are we talking about there? Does, does Isaiah expect that the reign of Messiah will usher in such an age of peace that rival animals will live in harmony together, that bears and oxen will graze right beside each other, uh, that, that they'll be so docile, the animals will be so docile and tame that a child could lead a lion around on a leash or play with venomous snakes? What does he mean? Is he talking about actual wolves and lambs getting along? Well, that's not impossible. God has proven and he's shown over and over. He often pacifies animals by his spirit. He shut the mouths of lions who were in the den with Daniel. He pushed the wild beasts out of the land of promise so that his people could settle there in the land of promise. All of the animals in the ark evidently got along for a while. Evidently, they were able to live together in peace for a while. They were subdued uh, for a time. So at various times, God has worked peace among animals. That's not impossible. But is that all Isaiah is talking about? If the Lord can work out this kind of concord among wild beasts, how does his spirit work among men? His animals in the Bible, whenever you see animals, your first thought should be, oh, he's telling us something about people. Well, animals are always showing us stuff about people. And animals in the Bible are a stand-in for mankind. Um, in the temple, worshipers bring lambs and bulls to the altar. Uh, they, they, they are, the worshiper is represented by the animal sacrifice. And when God's law says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, we get to the New Testament, we say, oh, that's talking about people. That's a commandment that has to do with people. In our epistle reading this morning that John read just a few minutes ago in Romans 15, Paul swaps out the animals living together, these clean and unclean animals, these sometimes predatory and victim animals. Um, uh, he, he's, Paul in Romans 15 swaps these out for Jew and Gentile. And, and instead of wolves and lambs, Jews and Gentiles are brought together and they're made one new people who are like-minded, one new people who with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says they receive each other. They are one new nation. They are one new family. And Paul quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 11 in Romans 15. With these clean and unclean animals in, in, in Isaiah 11, Paul applies that to uh, the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one new humanity in Christ. And so it's possible that one day, it is possible that one day our stewardship of creation, our faithful husbandry of the animals on the earth um, is going to produce this, this taming of animals and we can have lions for pets. You can have bears for pets. 
Um, I'd like a koala. Would you like a koala? Are those tame? Those look cool. Um, I don't know about playing with snakes, though. I don't care how tame they are. But he says that even a child shall play on a cobra's hole. It's possible that, that this will work out. But the nearer application, the nearer application is the work of Jesus results in men living together in peace. His victory subdues and pacifies the nations. And after this, right after this, Isaiah uh, says in verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah proclaims that the gradual but inevitable outworking of the coming of Messiah is that the violent nations, the raging nations are pacified and the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? They are the sea. The waters are the sea. It is the same promise we read in Psalm 72. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Now, one response to that that we might give, and, and maybe one way to interpret that is that, well, sure, that's going to happen one day in eternity in the heavenly realms, but we really can't, we can't expect that to be filled in, fulfilled in time, in history. Wouldn't it also be victory if um, things get so bad that Jesus just comes back and rescues his people and obliterates everything else? Wouldn't, wouldn't that also be victory? Well, if you're thinking that way, I can see where you're coming from. I see how you might get there. But understand, that's not the story that the prophets tell. Isaiah starts out talking about Messiah and his ministry, and then it just keeps getting better from there. Messiah comes and his kingdom grows until eventually it covers the whole earth. There's no interruption. Listen to this progression from Isaiah 9. And this is a text that we read and we hear and we sing this time of year. So I won't blame you if you start singing along in your head as I read Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Jesus comes and his kingdom grows from there uninterrupted. And then, and then Isaiah is sure to say, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yahweh is deeply invested in the success of the mission of the kingdom of his son. He is zealous for the success and the victory of his son. So there's an unbroken chain of events from when the child is born in Isaiah 9 to the increase of his government and the peace without end. Isaiah also, he adds, his reign is ordered. It is established. It is forever. The mission of gospel success never gets derailed, not by the, delete, the disbelief of Israel. It's not interrupted by the failures of the church. 
The whole program is not going to be declared a failure. It's, gonna, it's not going to be terminated and tossed in the dumpster as God consumes the entire world in his wrath. Now, I know that your, your, your mind might be firing off. Well, what about these texts that sound like cosmic cataclysm in judgment? And it, and it sounds like that's still in the future. Remember that language of cosmic destruction in the New Testament is a reference to the way that the old world of the old covenant was violently brought to the end in the destruction of Jerusalem. Because that very same language is used in the Old Testament for Babylon and for other nations. That, that language of, of cosmic cataclysm was, uh, was used of Babylon's destruction. And it's used again because Jerusalem has become like Babylon. It also, the stars are going to go out for Jerusalem. Everything's going to be folded up and put away. The mel elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. What elements? Well, the, the elements of the old covenant. Everything is going to be brought to an end. Again, um, we, we cover that and, and spend time on that in, in other places. And we can discuss uh, more about that. But, but I know that when I say things like that, these texts fire off in your brain. But you've got to put everything in context of what the authors are, are talking about. And even in the midst of that epic event, even in the midst of the end of the old world, of the old covenant, Jesus is vindicated. God's enemies are judged. The church is delivered. Jesus has the victory. So the gospel is a message of salvation. And by salvation, we mean victory. I'm going to try to put this in a to-go box for you. I'm going to try to wrap all this up and give it to you. The, the gospel is a message of salvation, and by salvation we mean victory. And in your Bible reading, and in your singing, and in your meditation, and in your prayer, I want this to become part of our lexicon, that when we talk about salvation, we are talking about the victory of Jesus. The gospel is a message of God's triumph over sin, a message of his triumph over death and the grave, and his triumph over everything that stands in rebellion to his holiness and to his righteousness. The gospel is a story of triumph that begins with the coming of Jesus, and it never ends. Jesus talks about a mustard seed that grows into a, a mighty tree. In Daniel, we see the rock that crushes the empires of the world and then grows until it fills the whole earth. Um, that's the picture we get over and over. Uninterrupted, gradual, global growth of the kingdom. So everybody has an eschatology and almost everybody has a bad one. Um, either a depressing one or a hopeless one. Or, or an idolatrous humanistic eschatology that says somehow man is going to keep evolving and that God has nothing to do with any of this, which, which in reality always leads to more failure and more oppression and more suffering. It can't lead anywhere else but tyranny and depression. Only the gospel contains a message of real hope for the future, a message of real victory, an outlook that is optimistic, and a king who can actually accomplish those things. It is a message that has a king who has the power and the authority to accomplish what he has set out to do. Am I saying, wow, things are perfectly great right now in the world? No, absolutely not. Are the nations discipled? Are the nations bowing? the knee to King Jesus? No, they're not. Which means that we have a long way to go and we have a lot of work to do. We are still in the very early periods of church history. But in the meantime, as we, as we work, 
do not be shaped by the despair of our age. Do not be shaped by the constant hysteria and panic, the deep pessimism. Because we are surrounded by voices coming from every direction who are constantly trafficking in hopelessness and defeat. And they want to manipulate you through dread and fear. Anxiety and outrage are the two coins of this realm. And these voices are all at war with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. In the middle of all this, we can be sober about the real problems of our time. And we can be righteously angry over sin, but still live lives of joy and celebration, knowing that all of these fountains all around us spewing, spewing godless despair, they are totally, completely, seriously wrong. They are wrong, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, says Paul in 2 Timothy. So what is the cash value? of this optimistic eschatology. What does it change? Well, everything, everything. Consider this. If the world belonged to the devil, if Christ isn't reigning as king, and if it's all headed to a cosmic dumpster fire, what's the point of anything? I mean, just make, your, make sure your soul is saved and wait it out. Hunker down, wait for the end. But if Jesus came to overthrow the works of the devil... And if he is establishing his rule to the edges of the earth, then your life and your work in the world take on a whole new relevance. Every part of the world and every dimension of your life belong to Jesus. And your work in the world is to bring everything in your sphere of influence in submission to Jesus. And you do this understanding that we are not the last generation to live on earth. But we still have a long way to go and you raise your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren with the long view, the view that they are also going to be fathers and mothers and great-great-grandparents of generations to come. They are, the, they are the mothers and fathers of legacies of faithfulness to span centuries to come. That baby on your lap, that little boy, that little girl next to you right now on the pew, even if they're not yours, there's, there's little babies, there's boys and girls, they're everywhere. They are great, 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 great grandmothers, and they are great, great, great grandfathers to hundreds of thousands of people. Do you think raising your children and giving them a Christian education is unimportant or a light thing? You are raising a nation. You are raising a family. You are raising a great people, and they're on your lap right now. Um, that's the view that we take, that we in our work right now is, is building a kingdom that is going to last for generations, for centuries upon centuries. Additionally, on top of this, we, we take this view that the church is not a temporary organization that only exists for private spiritual enrichment. She is the body. She is the bride of Christ. She is the seat of Christ's rule in the world. So we invest ourselves in building her up and then working out from there, building institutions that are founded on Christ, knowing that only the things that are built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to stand into the future. Everything else, anything that's not built on him is headed for collapse. We know also, that obedience to the Lord Jesus is the only means for the advancement of the kingdom. So we don't compromise what God has said. We don't try to just gain short-term victories that don't promote 
the crown rights of King Jesus. We take an explicitly Christian approach to education, to politics, to science, to technology, to the arts, to sports that says all of this belongs to Jesus. And the sooner we steadfastly advocate for his reign, the sooner we can truly have peace and order and truth and beauty and goodness in the world. This hope of the success of the gospel, this hope for the victory of the gospel energizes us. It delivers us from the sad submission to despair and anxiety and outrage, this, 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 this sense of, of despondency that's carried around in our generation, this hopelessness, because we have hope for this world and for Christ's work in it. The cosmos and everything in it belongs to our king, to our friend, to our shepherd, to our older brother Jesus. It doesn't belong to the devil, which means then we are not the outsiders. We're not these, these strangers trying to find our way in and somehow make ourselves relevant to the world. We've operated, my entire life, evangelicalism has operated with this assumption that we're on the outside looking in. And maybe if we could just copy what they're doing and maybe sanitize it a little bit, uh, then maybe someone will take us seriously because that's really what we want deep down. We deeply want pagans and heathens to take us seriously, to allow us a place at their table. What are we thinking? We're not playing defense. We're not back on our heels. Satan's great deception is to fool the church into thinking that we have to apologize for existing, that we have to feel bad about God's word, that we need to be embarrassed about the truth. No, it's not we who need to be ashamed. It's the world of unbelief that's embarrassing. It's the world of unbelief, the world of rebellion against God that is irrelevant and outside of authority, I mean, outside of reality. It really is embarrassing. It really is shameful to be in rebellion to the rule of King Jesus. It's indefensible to never give thanks to your creator, to never appear before his throne in worship, to never give him uh, the worship that is due him, to never hear him speak through his word and to never commune with him. That's not normal. That, that's very abnormal. It is weird. It is perverse. It is twisted. It is upside down to ignore your creator and to not obey him. And so it's not we who are um, on the outside looking in. It's not we who are living in a fantasy world. If someone does not acknowledge the reality that Jesus is reigning presently as king, they are living in the fantasy world. They are in the land of make-believe. They are not in their right mind. Why should we fear them then and care what they think about us? Child of God, rest, rest in these truths. Rest in the... Uh, in the victory of your king. Rest is the exclamation point that, that Isaiah puts at the end of this prophecy. He says in verse 10, last thing, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. That's what we're headed for is rest. And so rejoice and celebrate. Enjoy God's good gifts with gratitude Work hard, be faithful, raise your children in loving, stable homes, give them Christian educations, and rest in your king who reigns victoriously, hoping in the triumph that he has worked out for you. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus, and we praise you for his reign. 
in our lives, in our day. May we make progress to press his crown rights into every sphere of influence that we have in our work, in our enjoyments, in our families, and in every place. Father, uh, we want Jesus to reign over everything, over our hearts. And so we pray that he conquers us completely, that we are in complete submission to him and to his reign. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.